And we just realized that there's a big difference between commitment and compliance as humans. And when the industry was calling demeaning people, people would resist paying, even if it was in their best interest to, because they were treated like crap. And so we didn't understand that what we were doing was we were filling people's basic need to feel understood, which is an underlying need that drives commitment. Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. By far, the most popular story from my book, The Empathy Edge, is the story of Christina Harbridge and her magical collection agency. Yes, I said magical. The story of how she created a culture of empathy that led to transforming a usually bleak work environment into a thriving culture. A culture which led to clients who would send thank you cards and wedding invitations to their collection agents. A culture that resulted in her agency achieving success rates that were three times the industry average and led to companies clamoring to work with her because they knew their brand would be well represented. How did she do it? What is she doing now? Is the agency still around? These are all questions I get and ones Christina herself is here to talk to us about today. We spoke about how she accidentally stumbled on this business model, what she learned from it, and how she now teaches leaders to build the same kind of culture and company. She shares the biggest obstacles that leaders face in transforming their cultures and breaking outdated models, and the financial success that comes from treating employees and customers with dignity, respect, and empathy. And finally, we talk about the important role systems design plays in ensuring your company can actually live out its values day to day, and make them more than just a talking point. I have been wanting to get Christina on the show for so long and the stars and our schedules finally aligned. So I cannot wait for you to hear this amazing talk and learn from this amazing woman. Take a listen. Welcome Christina to the Empathy Edge. I am so excited to have you on the show today because as I told you, By far the most popular story in my book, The Empathy Edge, has been the story of you and your collection agency and the magic that you made happen. So I cannot wait to share that story with folks. Welcome to the show today. Oh, thank you so much for what you're doing in the world, Maria. (laughs) Likewise. So let's just get right into it. Tell us about your journey to starting the collection agency and what you did there in terms of culture and a culture rooted in empathy that led to such financial success. 
Uh, so the first thing I want to say up front, it, it was all accidental. So I, it wasn't this big grand scheme where I sat down and figured this all out. So I had an incredible team and we iterated. So the way that it started is I went to work at a collection agency when I was 19 because my dad had Parkinson's. I was in college. I had to pay for him and I had to figure out a way to make enough money to go to college and pay for him. So I answered this ad for a collector that was double minimum wage. And I thought it was like furniture, antique furniture. I had no idea this industry existed. So the first day when I'm standing in filing stuff in in a room, I heard the nicest people I'd ever met in the break room become evil. They were demeaning people. And And I can see it in my head right now. My hands were shaking. I was so freaked out by what I heard. So I'm 19 years old and I'm like, I'm going to start a collection agency that collects collects debt by being nice. And and we may not collect as much, but people are going to want to work with us. I'm going to do it. And I couldn't let it go. From then on, I just kept thinking about it. And so my dad was a civil rights worker who really believed in infiltrating the systems you want to change. And so every time I talked to him about it, he's like, you got to do it. Like no one's going to change it from the outside. You got to change it from the inside. So that's like the backstory. So when I started it, I had written a, helped write a software that I believed we would collect less by being nice because the phone calls would be longer. So Maria, empathy takes time. You know, empathy is a feeling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you have a two minute phone call, that's transactional. But to do empathy and be kind and nice, it's going to triple the time on the call. So I knew that. We were going to, I thought we were going to collect less, but we would figure out other ways to be more efficient so we could stay profitable and sell on this idea that we're the last person that your customer talks to. So complete accident, we collected three times more. So three times more, and we got invited to weddings by the way we collected. That is the best part of that story was the wedding invitations and the toy box that you had to have outside because people were bringing their kids to meet their collection agent, which I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was, we were like, we're like the dentist. Like if your parents bringing you, we got to have a toy for the kids. And we, um, people would send pictures of their animals. And we just realized that, there's a big difference between commitment and compliance as humans. And when the industry was calling demeaning people, people would resist paying, even if it was in their best interest to, because they were treated like crap. Mm -hmm. And so we didn't understand that what we were doing was we were filling people's basic need to feel understood, which is an underlying need that drives commitment. Mm -hmm. And so they would pay us first. Now, Sometimes we would tell them not to pay us if they didn't owe it, if they needed to dispute it. So sometimes it was a matter of resolving a conflict, but we would get the real story because of the empathy. They would tell us what was really going on. Right. Because they trusted you and they felt seen and valued by you. And that led to a stronger relationship where one of the things that stuck with me when I interviewed you for the book was that you talked about The goal of the first call is not to get the money. The goal of the first call is to establish trust. And can you imagine if that's the the stance you take as a, as a boss with a new employee or as, you know, a, a colleague working on a new project with somebody that the goal of that first interaction is not to complete the transaction. It's to establish trust. And get at the truth. 
Mm-hmm. It's trust in the truth. So, so let's apply it to what the example you just gave. If I'm a boss and I have a one-on-one, what's the purpose of that one-on-one? It's not the agenda. Mm-hmm. The purpose of the one-on-one is to first see what the operating system of the individual is. Because Maria, if I want to give you tough feedback and I ask you first, what do you want to make sure we talk about today? And the one-on-one, which is an empathy statement, and you say to me, I don't think I could do this job anymore. Like my confidence is so low. That's not the time to give you feedback. Right. That's not the time for me to tell you you have typos in your emails. Like <laughs> so often we're not applying empathy to the systems we're using to engage with the people we work with. And then we wonder why they leave. Mm-hmm. It's because we haven't confronted reality in those one-on-ones. We're treating the one-on-one like a transactional meeting. Right, right. Yeah. And going into it with your own agenda versus like my intention for this meeting is to help this person improve or to help us get work done together or help us work right. better together. The, at, the point of the meeting is not to berate someone and make them feel like crap, right? right. So I and I love that. And you know, I, I spend a lot of time with the distinction of empathy about it. Empathy is not being nice. It's not agreeing with, you know, it's not even agreeing with someone. It's not caving into crazy demands. But you kind of hit that nail on the head that it's really about understanding someone else's context. And what I love about your collection agency, and I'm sure that made it so successful, is you took the time to understand the client's context. Now, I would love for you to touch on as well with the collection agency, how you led with empathy for the employees, because you shared so much about it. It wasn't just about empathy for the clients that owed money. It was also about supporting these employees in this incredibly hard job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's two things I'll say. The first one is we changed our system of awards. So we realized that if we bonus on money collected, then we have a competing priority on those phone calls. So we started bonus, bonusing on thank you cards received. So and you couldn't ask for them. That we believed we don't, you're not going to be bonused on the money that you collect you're going to be bonused on people saying, wow, thank you for that. And on the experience, on the experience. And so it changed. Our team didn't feel the pressure to close the deal and get all transactional or ask for more than the person could afford or try to get somebody to pay a debt that didn't owe it, which can happen. It was about them giving an experience that the person isn't getting anywhere else so much so that they have to thank for it. Like that's that thank you card. It's like, I'm, I'm, I just got a feeling I'm not getting anywhere else. So hundred percent right. of the time, the person with the most thank you cards had the most money collected always. That was accidental. So people always mm-hmm. look at me like I was some guru. I didn't know that was gonna happen. <laughs> like that happened. Well, that we was just common surprised. sense, right? I want to reward the behavior that I seek, like not, not yeah. something that's an antithesis to this. Yeah. And, and by doing so you, you prove the correlation of the, positive customer experience leads to profitability, leads to revenue, leads to all of those other things where so often it's like, well, we don't need to worry about that right now. We just need to worry about closing the transaction. Right. It's like, but if you do quote unquote, worry about it, you'll actually close the transaction. (laughs) Exactly. And the second example around this is the way your question was how 
the team was led, how all of us as leaders inside the organization, so much of this is driven by the culture. Mm -hmm. And as leaders, we can be great 95% of the time, but it's that 5% where our head pops off and spins around like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. That 5% is what really drives the culture. It's our ability to notice when we are soothing our discomfort in demeaning ways. When we make people feel small, when we're transactional, when we cut them off at the knees. So here's an example. Went into my break room and on the wall of the break room above the sink was somebody had made a sign that said, your mother doesn't work here. Clean up after yourself. And I looked at the sign and I'm like, this is a message inside our organization that is messing with culture. So I ripped the sign off and I called everybody together in a big circle. We, had, we met every morning, but I did it in the middle of the day, which was so unusual because we always met every morning and we danced. We had like dance breaks and stuff, but we never had afternoon meetings. So I called everybody together and I was holding the sign and I held the sign up. And everyone kind of looked down. We're sorry. We know we're not doing the dishes. Like I watched everyone's physiology apologize, feel bad. And um, I'm going to cry when I tell the story. I looked at everybody. I said, you, every single one of you is on the front lines of, of some of the hardest conversations in the country. When people issues of money is so terrifying for people. Mm-hmm. And you're in the middle of these conversations, hearing people's health challenges, that the loss of family members, loss of a job, you're helping them find jobs. You're like the, the firefighters in there. The least I can do for you is your dishes. I don't want anyone in this company to ever do another dish. I will do them for you. It will be a service that I am happy to do because you are on these calls. You deserve more than just your dishes being done. I will do them. And I'm telling you guys, I'm putting a sign up there. Leave it. I will do it every afternoon and every day before I go home. And it will be my, my honor to do that for you. And we all cried. And everybody's like, no, we don't want you to do it. I yeah. said, no. And so the next and I bet day- most people actually started doing their dishes because- Well, <laughs> well the next day there were fur-lined gloves- um, on the thing for me and an apron. It was hilarious. They got right. out and got me all this thing. And what ended up happening, um, one of our team members, one of our collectors called everybody together and said, hey, uh, I just saw something really cool happen where four people stood up in the break room and offered to do dishes for somebody else. Like, I just noticed that we have now started serving each other. And, it, and we all like, fault. Like lead this by is, example, right? I mean, this yeah. is the thing you set as, as the leader, you set the tenor because that's all culture really is. Right. My, right. my friend, Rebecca freeze is a talented, um, culture and workplace expert. She wrote a book called the good culture, which we did an interview, a podcast several episodes ago. And she talks about culture, just being the way work gets done, the way we treat people, the way we treat people, the way work gets done. That's all culture is. It's not the ping pong table. It's not the perks. It's not the casual Fridays. It's exactly what you're describing. It's when, and when you create that model and you, you serve as the role model as the leader in that, you know, sort of servant leadership position, it completely transforms the culture. Well, and how people feel about themselves drives commitment. 
Mm-hmm. And so many of us, and I can point to times where I didn't do it when I, when I needed empathy myself, Maria, one of the biggest challenges I see in leaders of people is many of us have an underlying need for empathy. We're not getting enough of it. And that's what makes us lash out. Mm-hmm. And so often inside an organization, you know, my need for empathy would cause me to print that sign. Mm-hmm. And so cultures that give empathy up and down, if there is a ladder, yeah. it so often, you know, giving empathy to the CEO will level up that CEO's behavior mm-hmm. because they're human too. They have an right. underlying need and they're getting asked for stuff all the time. And right. over time, they stop giving empathy because they're not getting it themselves. So you left the collection agency, you sold it. Yeah. And so that is the other big question I get is what happened? (laughs) So I had a son, an amazing child, and I, I was breastfeeding him on his third day of life and noticed I was thinking about payroll and all these things. And I realized that's not the kind of mom I want to be. So it's time for me to take the baby I had created, give it to someone else. And I just was going to focus on being a mom. On, so, your, real, on your real baby, on your human yeah, baby. Yeah, my real baby. So I had <laughs> um, six or seven offers. And so I picked the person to buy the company that I thought would keep the mission going. Mm-hmm. Um, and that didn't require that I stayed because I didn't want to stay. I wanted to stay a little bit, but I didn't want to be involved because, you know, mm-hmm. when you sell your baby, last thing you want to do is see that they change the hair color or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I um, sold it and the agreement was every single employee would keep their job, which he kept. Everyone mm-hmm. kept their job, which is mm-hmm. nice. I didn't want them to just buy the asset and then let fire right. everybody. So everybody got to stay. Well, and really your people were your asset. I know that's right? exactly right. Yeah, exactly. right. Cause anyone yeah. can have a building in four walls, but it was right. your people that made the company right. what it was. Yeah. 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 Right. So, um, let's talk about what you're doing now. So you took all this accidental knowledge, <laughs> stumbling on genius as often happens. And now you advise companies on how to build sustainable, healthy cultures and systems with allegory. So talk to us about what that experience is like now being on the other side and teaching and advising and being a consultant. Yeah, I think at when I had my collection agency, I had an arm that was teaching people how to do what we do Mm -hmm. because companies would be like, wait a minute, you're getting invited to weddings. Teach us how to do that. So I was already teaching as part. So Mm -hmm. I sold the company. I thought I'm going to keep that part Mm -hmm. and that'll be my fun part. And so Allegory was started, what, 15 years ago, um, and we started doing two things. We do behavioral leverage through learning. So we help organizations create the behaviors that will move them closer to outcomes, given that humans are irrational and emotional, Mm -hmm. given that cognitive load is not always the best way to drive behavior. Mm-hmm. Then we also do system design. So are the systems inside the business driving the behavior that you want and to see? often they're not. Right. So often organizations hire us for training and we say, no, you got to fix your system because mm-hmm. you're all, you know, cognitive load 
And willpower is not the way to leverage behavior. System mm-hmm. design is. Mm-hmm. So give us an example of that, like working with, with a client that you've worked with yeah, and how transformed so, them. Yeah. So here's an example would be, um, oh, gosh, there's so many I can think of, and I'm trying to be confidential. Let me think. We don't need names. So here's, here's a good example. So uh, hiring people. So all organizations have a system that they've developed for hiring and they might use, there's books on hiring. But when you think about that, there's three primary behaviors in the interview process that a company wants to know, and it's different for every single company. I have never met a company where their hiring process sets it up so that they can see that behavior faster. They, they set up a system where somebody has to describe it, where behavior is something you need to see. So we had an organization that the behavior that they wanted is they wanted team, somebody who really collaborated, that put the team first. They wanted somebody that was innovative, that would think of a way of doing something outside the box. Mm-hmm. And they wanted a person that would still stay to the confines of the project. Mm-hmm. So those are three, like, like, how do you hire for that? Mm-hmm. So we developed a hiring system for them where 10, they, they, they have the candidates answer a series of questions that require detail. And so they only bring the people in that are really good at that. So mm-hmm. they, in just the way that you apply, um, lets you know which ones have one of the behaviors that you need. Mm-hmm. And then we had all 10 of the, for the interview, come in at the same time. So come in, sit around the table. We're doing a group interview. We're going to have you do an exercise in small groups. And then you've got about five minutes to work together as a team. And then we're going to bring you back to the conference room and talk, talk conference table and talk about it. While they're doing that exercise, the, the team watches them for the behaviors that they want in the role. You watch them. You don't have them tell you how team oriented they are. You watch them. How team oriented are they? What do they do? And we came up with all the micro behaviors to look for. Mm-hmm. Then they come and they sit at the conference room, conference table. And one by one, they go and do a one-on-one interview with somebody. But the real interview is how they're interacting in the group. Right. And so then there's the deeper interviews after that. But it, mm-hmm. it, what it did is it's so hard for someone to, to talk about their behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, then you get the tell us, you know, the biggest challenge you have. Well, I just work too hard. Exactly. Exactly. I'm always on time. Yeah. Yeah. That that reminds me of um, one of the people I interviewed for the book, uh, Brighton Jones, they talked about that in their interview process, because they're looking for emotional intelligence and and self-regulation. And, you know, a good sign of empathy is that you can accept feedback as a gift because you're seeing things from another person's point of view. You're not taking it personally or defensively. So one of the ways that they assess emotional regulation and emotional intelligence is to actually give real-time feedback in the interview that might be negative and see how the person responds to it. Do they respond with curiosity and, and trying to understand, like, tell me more about why you, you have that impression. Do they respond with defensiveness? Right. Do they respond with anger? Do they, you know, slam their hand on the table and storm off? Not that they're making up the feedback that they're giving them, but they're yeah. actually giving them the feedback in, in the situation, because that's part of what they're looking for is they're looking for someone who can take feedback. Well, right. Yeah. That's an example of behavioral interviewing. Mm-hmm. And it, that is a system that is very customized for every organization. 
Mm-hmm. So we look at roles. We have to look at behaviors. What are the primary behaviors at this stage of business, giving this set of priorities with this team that this role must have? Mm-hmm. And so often people leave an interview saying, oh, they just weren't the right culture fit, which is often code for something in that interview may be uncomfortable and I'm soothing it by othering them. Mm-hmm. When in fact, that person may be the perfect person for that role. It's just the interviewers managing their discomfort in a way that's messing with what they really want. Mm-hmm. So that's as you, as you work with companies, what, what are they coming to you to help solve? How are they, how are they expressing the challenges that they're having? So if I were to put it in a sentence, it's usually transformational leaders that are trying to change something, push or do something. And to do that, they have to shift people. There has to be a shift in people towards commitment. So it can be founders looking for funding. It can be an executive team needing to rally the troops. Um, It can be, we have a group of leaders that aren't acting as a team. Mm -hmm. And then a huge piece of it, Maria, is just storytelling. Mm-hmm. So we named our company Allegory. I've been teaching storytelling for 30 years. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks come trying to understand the physiology of storytelling mm-hmm. because it's been done in such a transactional way the last five years. It's kind of not hitting the right. way it used to. So a lot of folks come to us for that. Right. And what do you think are there, you know, what role, what role does empathy play in, in helping them overcome some of these challenges? Yeah. So I think one of the a great misunderstanding that we're seeing in the marketplace is empathy is not a strategy. It's a feeling. And well, so and what it's even a, I go as far as saying it's a mindset. Yes. Like maybe you don't even feel what that person's feeling, but if you adopt a mindset of empathy, you can try to see things from their point of view. Right. And it's not, it not requiring they change their reality. So that's where I think empathy is not a tool to change the other person. To manipulate, right. It's right. not a tool for manipulation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a way to understand. And so an example would be, I have a series of articles coming out pretty soon about this topic that when people are working on a leadership team, if they have hired well, they should have people that bug the snot out of them. Like physiologically, the way that person works ticks me off. It bugs me. So to be a team, I've got to have people that work different than I do. Right. Empathy is my ability to be curious about whether or not in this moment, this moment is actually not for me. It's for their talent. So in a meeting, instead of running a meeting so I'm comfortable, which means I'm running the meeting for my talent. Can I be, have the empathy that I have four different kinds of needs in this room? This part of the meeting isn't for me, but I got to give what I don't need. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the the article we have coming out is around one of the soothing mechanisms of that discomfort when we lack empathy is we, empathy creates serotonin and dopamine if we're feeling it. If we're not applying empathy in a group setting, We'll go try to create serotonin and dopamine another way. And the way that we do this is gossip and triangulation. 
And it is the most toxic thing in businesses I see right now, where Maria, you and I will be in a meeting together. I don't like something you do. And instead of saying, hey, can you let me finish a sentence? Instead of saying to you, you know, you keep interrupting me, let me finish a sentence. Instead of just asking you for that and you go, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. My bad. And we keep going. Instead of doing that, I'll end the call with you and I'll go tell three people. Well, Maria, she interrupts me. She doesn't let me finish a sentence. What that does is it gives me serotonin and dopamine, but I haven't solved the problem. No. I've just spread it You're around. You're just validating your feeling. You're yeah. validating what, yeah. what you feel in that moment. Yeah. Yes. And so empathy, your question about empathy, it is our lack of empathy that causes us to do these soothing mechanisms that are messing with organizational outcomes. This triangulation thing, there is such a cost. People talk about each other rather than to each other. I love that. Oh my gosh. So tell us a little bit about what's next for you. Um, you know, what's going on, where do you see allegory going and what kind of impact, what do you want your legacy to be of that impact that you're having on organizations? That's a big question. I know, but I know it is, you know, it's so funny. I was listening. Um, I'm a member of this entrepreneurs organization. So I think we're like 16,000 entrepreneurs in so many countries, like 30 countries. And we had Trevor Noah come do a podcast with us. Oh my gosh. And someone asked him this question, what is your legacy? And I love his response. He says, when I'm in the middle of the legacy, my ego's driving. He said, my legacy is to as much as possible accelerate all the things that I care about with no one knowing that I did it. Like untangling myself. Because if I'm in there, I'm slowing it down. So I've really started geeking out on this. I love that. Yeah. I, so I do, um, I have this model of methods of change of the way that we improve society and it's through, um, infiltration and protest and tension and comfort. So it's like a quadrant. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about what's next for me, I'm redesigning allegories so that we can, um, I want to be in the classroom, in the classroom, teaching humans that are wanting to accelerate change in our society. So that's what's next for me is, I love it. is these leaders, me not being involved at all in the legacy of whatever they're doing, just adding fuel to that. Right. And so we're, you know, women, there's an organization called Emerge America that I helped helped found years ago, fueling these women that are running for office. We've trained like four or 5,000 women. Many of them are in office right Phenomenal. now, helping arts organizations, helping artists get funding so that they mm-hmm. can do big level sculpture. Mm-hmm. So just being in the classroom is a short term, you know, I letting people use our content to drive their movement. Right. Like well, really becomes, accelerating these. It becomes exponential when that's your mission and your purpose, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with the empathy edge and with this podcast. And even with my work as a brand strategist is just, can I be that catalyst that enables them to move forward and have the huge impact that I know those people, those leaders, those organizations can have. I don't have to be the one with all the glory, right? I don't have to be the Elon Musk or it doesn't have to be about me. It just has to be about like, and I used to, it's interesting. I used to shy away from that catalyst role. Like why, why do I not want to be in the spotlight? 
I mean, anyone who knows me knows that's not true. So, you know, (laughs) what is it that I just want to be? I want to be the influencer behind the activist behind that. And it's just when you finally come to that realization of like, this is where my passion is and this is where my skills lie. And I just want to, you know, it sounds like you're hitting your stride. Like, it's like, yeah, that's where you can have the most impact and you can have the most exponential impact is by teaching others, which is just beautiful instead of of starting another company. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it is, it's really hard to be both innovative in the human experience behavioral space and teach other people how to teach it. So I've spent 15 years teaching other people how to teach it, which dampens how much innovation I can do. Mm-hmm. So now I'm flipping that where mm-hmm. I'm not teaching people how to teach it. I'm freeing myself up to be innovative and create new ways for us to accelerate things. And I think given where we are as a society, we need some new ways to deploy empathy and how we talk about ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, it's, um, I, I think it's a, I think we have such an opportunity in our society right now yes. to accelerate authenticity without transactions attached to them. Right. So, and, to, and to know that that can lead to great success. Like my thing is all about busting the old models and the old beliefs about, about leadership success and business success and profitability. It's been such a binary, like it's forced people to give up their humanity or give up, you know, their compassion because they think that's the only way to win. And, you know, we're in this renaissance of, you know, realizing that there's ways for companies and for leaders to win and succeed by being the nice guy or the nice gal. Like, and I hate to use the word nice, but by putting other people first, by putting communities first, by putting the environment first, by putting, and then the profits come. Like they're not, this is my whole, you know, my whole mantra is cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. And I love that there's people like you on the front lines that are helping shape those future leaders as well. I I feel like there's this, this whole army, I call it my empathy army of people in the world that are doing this work and showing that there's another way that we've, we don't have to be blind to the model we've been sold. Exactly. Exactly. And so systems drive behavior. And we have a lot of organizations that were developed a system based on capitalism from the 1800s. And we must, what I'm doing right now is completely editing my business system. So I'm, ta- I'm, I'm not, I'm not editing, I'm reworking it, like starting over in a way, like, mm-hmm. because when we edit existing, there's only so much change we're going right. to develop. Right. And so an example would be with the murder of George Floyd, so many organizations were finally talking diversity, like diversity and inclusion. And there was a huge um, learning that happened in corporate America. The challenge is they were putting this DEI efforts in HR. You know, mm-hmm. diversity is a competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. This needs to be on the revenue side of your business. So with companies that came to us for, you know, how do we think about this? It's like, don't park it right. in a part of your business, park it on the revenue side and yeah. invest in it and hire black led firms to design a way for you to really do this. Mm-hmm. Don't design it yourself. Right. You have to, de- you have to hire the experts to design it, which takes incredible empathy 
and those leaders being able to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And being able to be humble. Firms come in, Mm -hmm. they'll let you know, actually, you're not inclusive. And here's the seven ways. Right. Right. And that's what, you know, I've done a lot of conversations with DE and I experts on this show. And um, it's just, it's, it's, it's so, it is frustrating to say like, finally with George Floyd, people woke up, right. And (sighs) you, you talk to people of color, you talk to marginalized communities and they're a little offended by that. Like, this is what it finally took for this to it's happen. It's so ridiculous. But it, for better or worse, it did. And, and even the companies that are putting the veneer on of empathy, of diversity are right. being called out. Yes. Like to, to your point, exactly. Your social memes are great, but how did you actually change your systems That's to embrace exa- diversity and inclusion and exactly empathy right. or whatever you, you're yeah. trying to get more of, Right. And as a white presenting woman, I'm Mexican, but I'm white presenting. So to the world, I'm white. And when companies would ask me to do their their DEI stuff, I'm like, no freaking way. Mm -hmm. Get a black led firm. Like do not, there's, there's, there's this whole system change that must happen that we are going to ride in on empathy and massive discomfort. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, this diversity thing, it's the global majority is what mm-hmm. we're talking about. Right. Well, the, so, the generations entering the workforce are the most diverse they've ever been. Yeah. And yeah. this is what I've constantly talked about on the show. Gen Z um, millennials, they don't want to work for workplaces that don't embrace diversity and actually harness right. different points of view because they view it as if you don't do that, you're not making smart business decisions. Like it's exactly. not just, a, it's not just a moral thing. It's like, right. you, you, how can you possibly make good business decisions when everyone on the board and the executive team looks and sounds alike? You've exactly. got to be missing something. <laughs> and it's a competitive advantage. It so is. It, it is. is and, it is completely. Well, I love it. Um, thank you so much for your insights. I was absolutely thrilled to interview you for the book. And like I said, you have been my most popular story from the book that I get the most questions about. So I love pointing people to allegory, but tell folks who are not looking at the show notes right now, really quickly where they can find out more about you and your work. So we do have a book uh, around context available. If folks like to read stuff, Suede, How to Communicate for Impact, you can find me on Instagram, Christina Harbridge. Love questions. I love creating material. Um, so if there's anyone ever wants to reach out with questions, would love to hear from you. I love it. This has been such a joy to talk to you today, Christina. Thank you. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And thanks everyone for listening. Don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the show. If you loved it, please rate and review. And always remember that cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. Take care and be kind. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Empathy Edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time, remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success. Success.